Welcome to the Augustan Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Blanchard. This is a podcast featuring conversations about the life and thought of St. Augustine of Hippo. Each episode features an interview with a different guest, usually on to talk about their own work that considers Augustine, his life, his thought, and his writing. I hope you enjoy the show. My guest today is Professor John Cavadini. He's a professor of theology at the University of Notre Dame, having served as the chair of theology from 1997 to 2010. Since 2000, he served as the director of the McGrath Institute for Church Life at Notre Dame. He received a BA from Wesleyan University, an MA from Marquette University, an MPhil, and his PhD from Yale University. He's been a member of the Notre Dame faculty since 1990. Professor Cavadini teaches, studies, and publishes in patristics and early medieval theology. He has also served a five-year term on the International Theological Commission, appointed by Pope Benedict XVI, and in 2018, he received the Monica K. Helwig Award from the Association of Catholic Colleges and Universities for Outstanding Contributions to Catholic Intellectual Life. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with him about his collection of essays, Visioning Augustine. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to chatting with you. Where are you? Oh, I'm in South Carolina. Um, I'm not in Scotland this morning. I'm home visiting family. So we go back the first. We came home to visit family. We had a son in December and people wanted to see him. As one would. Yeah, I hope so. Okay. Where are you? I assume you're in Notre Dame? Is that yeah, right? In my office, which isn't very neat. I'm looking at the background. Doesn't look that good. Uh, looks. It just looks smart. Books everywhere. Mine is, I think, bunk beds um, <laughs> that no one's ever used. But my father-in-law has ambitions for me, I guess. Uh, is that like the tomb in which no one had ever been buried? <laughs> Something like that. Well, good. Why don't I just start? Tell me a little bit about your work, what you do, where you are professionally, and how you got there, if you want to mention as a tangent, sort of how these essays come about and how you got into Augustine. That's probably plenty to get us started. Yeah, where I am professionally, I've been teaching at Notre Dame for 30 years, more than that. Um, how I got where I've gotten is mostly by accident, I guess. Um, I didn't really have any plan. I guess most people maybe have plans. I don't know. I didn't really have a plan. Um, and how did I get interested in Augustine? You know, I can't really tell you that either. <laughs> I um, I don't know. I remember reading City of God, book 11, I think, when I was an undergraduate, and I thought it was preposterous. I just thought... How could you say that the light, the light created when God said, let there be light is like the angels. I thought there's no justification for that. I remember thinking that was just absurd. Um, at some point I read the confessions, I guess, and didn't like it either. Um, I don't know why I just didn't speak to me. So I had a very rather negative first impression. Uh, I don't know how that changed. Um, it might have changed because when I was a um, master's student, we worked very carefully through book one of the um, De Doctrina, and I got to see more. There was more there there than I thought there had been. I don't really know. Um, I, I think there was like an on switch, like that at some point got turned on. And I don't okay. know. And that was and that switch is still on and i've never i mean when it was on it was just all on and i i felt an affinity with augustine and with his way of thinking that has never gone away it's very odd um because i i was born in 1953 and and augustine was born in 353. Um, so I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm tracking his career somehow. <laughs> and that when Ford, 
when um, you know 19 whatever 20 you know, 2029 comes around or whatever it is i'll be thinking well <laughs> I guess it's very uncanny um i just have a sense of it's very odd i i, I have a sense of living through things with saint augustine um i don't have a particular devotion to saint augustine i'm too afraid of him to have mm-hmm. a devotion to him he's too um imposing I think he wouldn't like me if we ever actually met. And so I, it's not that kind of a thing. So I have a devotion to some of the saints, but not to St. Augustine. And I, um, I just feel that somehow um, I'm, I'm working with him on everything I do and thinking with him, not just when I'm working on Augustine, when I'm thinking through anything. It's a very odd feeling. So when that switch got turned on, it was like it wasn't like a little light switch. It was like one of those horrifying-looking electrode-looking switches that <laughs> that um, just turned all the current on and it never went off. So that's I can't, but I can't tell you exactly when. Fair enough. Um, you say you you have no affinity for him um, in a particular sort of. I don't have a devotion. Devotion. I don't have a devotion to him, like you know, cult of the saints kind of devotion. And I and I and I do have a devotion to a lot of saints, but not to him. It's just he seems too imposing, and I don't think he'd like me. Can you say more about that? Um, you mentioned it in your like the preface to this work too. Like, I don't I, think he's like most of us. Really, I just say that. Um, I don't know. I I just think he probably thinks I'm a compromiser, and. Um, I don't think things through to the last bit, and I don't take the Bible as seriously as he did, and I think probably I'm just an altogether inferior sort of thing. On the other hand, the other half of me says, yeah, but Augustine was so patient with all these kinds of people. Like, um, all his sermons, they're just full of patience, and he knows that the people are, you know, maybe sleeping together for pleasure, (laughs) Um, possibly harboring grudges i mean but he figures out how to i don't know how to create a sort of spiritual therapeia that seems to be warm instead of cold and it's it's a kind of pastoral approach that seems i won't say accommodating but i would say um empathetic and so then i think well that's why i like him because if I don't have to actually meet him <laughs> and see what he thinks about me, um, I think that this sort of approach is something that I have benefited from thinking about uh, and also trying to enact in anything that I've done in teaching and anything. I've tried to try to make it my own. Hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know that I guess I wouldn't like you. That seems like a pretty, um, for lack of a better term, Augustinian self-description of oh, I compromise and I don't take scripture seriously. Not as seriously as he did, baby. I mean, yeah. I, too. I tell my students that as you know, when I, when I was younger and read and read patristic literature and we came to a scripture quote, I would just mentally white it out. Oh yeah, because like it's not the person speaking. And then I suddenly realized, well, John, like the nice little italics that the editor puts in um, to let you know it's a scripture quote. They're not in the text, and Augustine thought in those terms. And and um, his you know fashioned his thinking with scriptural images and phrases. So um, whiting them out mentally is, <laughs> is just missing most of what they um, what somebody like Augustine had to say. Yeah. When you say you've tried to adopt his method in what you do, what do, what do you mean by like his method that you um, you take on what you do and think and teach? Um, I guess one thing is I, I try, when I teach, and also when I write, I try to think with people. I try to not seem like an authority, and I'm not an authority. Um, I, I, I feel like with students, they're much more likely to um, to, to think farther and better if, you, if they think you're thinking with them, and that there's something larger than both of us that we're seeking. And that um, it's not that I it's not that I don't have authority over them. 
or I make believe I don't, I do. Um, but but it's, and that authority is necessary for learning, but it's just how it's exercised and how um how you how you how you teach that we're not we're not in this we're not in this quest together to be credentialized. I mean, I know we are like at a PhD level. You have to be credentialized. You got to get a job. I get that, but that's like the um, that's like the uh, the eloquence that like in book four of the Didactrina, you know, eloquence comes along with the wisdom as as wis as wisdom's lady in waiting. So the credentializing comes along with the truth seeking, and I'm very interested in teaching my students to teach to seek for truth, um, and that if I'm I have to be doing that too. All the way, you know, from the first year student in the first year in a first college course to a PhD student, all that whole continuum, um, I, I approach that way. And I think um, if you don't approach it that way, if you're not interested in teaching freshmen uh, because they're not going to join the guild, then you're only really interested in people who join the guild. And then you're not really interested in seeking truth. And I think that Augustine um in his preaching and in his teaching but especially in his preaching he's always saying you know that i'm not the magister the magister is on the cross i'm 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 seeking with you but he doesn't hide the fact that he's guiding the seeking um and he's the one preaching and so there's a really beautiful balance there and i try to do the same thing when i write because I, re I regard writing as a sort of educational proposition my own writing I write for the same reason that I teach, which is like I'm interested in exploring the mysteries of the faith deeply with Augustine. That's why I like Augustine. I'm not interested in contributing to a thing called Augustinian studies. I'm interested in I'm interested in helping people, helping. I'm interested in myself being able to um, come to a deeper love and contemplation, and. Um, sense of the preciousness of Christian teaching and revelation. And I want to be able to help other people to do the same thing. That's my goal in writing. I happen to write a lot on Augustine, not exclusively, but that's because I think that writing on Augustine is a good way to help people to come to grips with some of these beautiful mysteries, be able to maybe live into them a little bit, maybe especially if they've left them behind or, or um, had have kind of, um, written them off or something like that, students or anybody. And so I hope to be able to help people take a second look. You know, maybe there's something here, you know, that you had that you hadn't seen before. And maybe it's worth taking a second look. And maybe if you do, um, something will grab you and you'll you may, maybe begin to grow spiritually. I know that sounds patronizing, but this is the project I propose for myself. Um, and so I, if, if anybody's interested in traveling along, I'm interested in traveling too yeah no i don't think it's patronizing especially as you yourself say like you weren't a big fan the first couple times <laughs> it gives you maybe some some street cred to say yeah stick with it take a second look that's right yeah, yeah. well let me back up and hear from you in your own words what what do you do uh how do you define your work at notre dame you've been there for a long time i can read a cv and see you know quote what you do but how would you define your work broadly um hmm. how do i define my work I, i've never asked myself that i guess um i guess i i think of myself as contributing to the creation of some kind of um, <clears throat> intellectual culture that is nourished by and driven by the quest to understand understand the mysteries of the Christian faith. That that somehow drives an intellectual culture, and I'm interested in and in contributing to that project. I'm interested in a project of renewal, renewal of uh, intellectual culture from the perspective from the perspective of faith-seeking understanding mm. um, and everything I've done here 
really has been, I guess you could put it under that category. I've taught here for 30 years. I was chair of the theology department for 11 years. I run this thing called the McGrath Institute for Church Life. So I'm considerably invested in program leadership. But it's all, I mean, I, I didn't seek any of these jobs. At a certain point, they were thrust upon me in one way or another. Um, and um, and I accepted them. But I accepted them because I'm very interested in recovering or renewing a credible intellectual culture that is founded in, in the faith. And my teaching, I hope, contributes to that in its own way. Um, I'm very interested in teaching. I teach more courses than I'm supposed to. I don't know why. Um, I feel like because I'm because I you know because I lead this unit here, I have a teaching course reduction. I don't usually take it because I can't reconcile myself to giving up graduate teaching or to giving up undergraduate teaching. And so I end up teaching them both. Um, but it's just, I want. And, and then in terms of writing, I haven't gotten as much done as I, as maybe a, a proper career, you know, should exhibit. But I have done all this work um, in trying to rebuild academic cultures, rebuild cultures, you know, that are, and re recenter them, the center of gravity in, in the faith, um, in a quest for, for wisdom, for sapientia, for Christian wisdom, um, and to, travel along with anybody who's interested in contributing to that project. So that's, I guess it's, there's so much to draw from that people aren't aware of. I think working in patristics, um, whether on Augustine or on Origen, my other favorite patristic author, though, though there are many others, but um, uh, it just, just gives you a sense of the, of the depth of the wisdom that you have to draw from. And, you know, I, I, I wasn't kidding when I thought, when I said I used to white out mentally all the scripture passages, but what I've come to learn over time is that what they were doing was to try, try to create a kind of scriptural culture, a, a culture based on the, um, the fundamental you know, teachings of, of, about creation and redemption in scripture and to fill their teaching with a scriptural vocabulary and um, especially origin you know, who's so invested in in the biblical imagery um, because he's confident that it's spirit filled and that if you know if you use this imagery and don't try to translate it into some other kinds of conceptual terms but allow it to stand and use it as such that the spirit will fill your imagination because these are spirit revealed and therefore spirit filled images and their collocation you know, in the Bible, um, is also spirit intended, so that the the thick, the, the sort of thick, um, thick prose, the thick rhetoric of um, a biblical imagery, um, is intended to build 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 a, a theological culture or a culture, an intellectual culture that has a that has a Christian, I don't know, inspiration and a Christian. Like horizon, which isn't to say, I mean, I'm not a sectarian. I'm, I'm not. I don't want to you know, cut other people out. But I, but you but nobody's university. You know, everybody's everybody's project is nobody's project. Somebody has to sponsor it, and somebody has to sponsor it out of conviction and out of out of um, out of the depth that's there. Which basically, if you pay attention to it, I don't know. It it, it opens your heart up in 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 um, you know in empathy and in love. Um, because of what we what we hold is so beautiful and so precious, and you want to share it. You also want to welcome people, and you want to you know seek them on their own terms. So I, I think of it as a kind of empathetic, broadly speaking, project. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that a lot. Tell me, this is off topic from Augustine, but tell me more about Origin. Uh, I've spent the last year working with John Baer and reading through. On first principles and doing that um, with my own Augustine research. I'm, I'm curious. I feel like that's a unusual pairing to say these are two really big interests of mine, two people I keep coming back to. What do you like about them that you see they have in common? What do you see them do differently? 
Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Um, well, I, I've been um, I've been trying to perfect a course that I call Two Ancient Apologists. This is at the PhD level. Um, reading the Contra Kelsum, you know, for the first half of the semester and the City of God for the second half of the semester, because these are the most, you know, magnificent apologia left from from antiquity. Henry yeah. Chapman makes that comparison himself in his introduction to the Contra Kelsum, his translation. Um, now, you can't read either work really fully in a semester. But you can get the hang of it, I guess you could say. And I, I've been shocked, really. I, I read the, I, I read these again, not so much because I'm, I'm interested in contributing to origin studies or Augustine studies. I mean, I am, but I want to. I'm trying to figure out how to do apologetics right or how to do apologetics better. Um, there's so much cheap apologetics going around now, which turn people off. Um, so, and what I, what I've noticed in reading them together is. Actually, how much, um, how much, how much of, how much is, how much they share? Like, I think people reading the Contra Kelsum or reading the City of God, you know, these are very philosophically sophisticated works. Gosh, the Contra Kelsum, it like leaves you breath. I mean, like what, what he knew. Yeah. Um, it's just breathtaking. Uh, and yet, and, and so people tend to think of them as, in the first instance, defenses of, you know, philosophical positions, but they're both in the first instance defenses of true worship. That's 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 the um, issue in apologetics, and and it was the issue from the start, right? Because Christians were being arrested for being atheists, um, and so the, it's defense of true worship that calls forth all of this, um, all of this philosophical sophistication, and it's in the service of that. So that's one thing. The second thing is. Um, I guess all my life I had been, I had been thinking, proof from prophecy, yeah, whatever. Like it's not that I denied it, but it just seems so, somewhat implausible to me, and it seems so implausible to our contemporaries. Um, like, what are you talking about, proof from prophecy? Go get a job, um, <laughs> or, or <laughs> and gosh. Like both of these apologia, both of these apologies are based on. I mean, Origen says it right up front in Book One. Proof, um, you know, the gospel has its own demonstration of spirit and of power. So, of spirit meaning prophecy and of power meaning miracles, and you can't get more basic than that. Um, spirit and power, and Augustine does the same thing. He's super invested in. Um, proof from prophecy and uh, and in and in miracles as a kind of prof prophetic sort of speech of God and and were indeed um, and so I've been trying to study this very carefully and I've I've just then decided I, I found out that you know stupid John Cavadini going along in his smug little academic like thought you know John C Cavadini PhD um, having contempt for proof of prophecy it's like not what you thought it was John. Yes, it's true um, that part of it is the prophets say make predictions that come true. That's part of it. Sometimes I joke and think that um, the one thing you're likely to learn in a Bible class about prophecy is that that's not about telling the future, but it is about telling the future. Um, like that's what Origen thought, and that's what Augustine thought. And man, if they could think it, I can think it. Yeah. But 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 also that you know pagan soothsayers tell the future and it comes true. So it's not just that. It's that and the way it's connected to the way it opens. So the proof from prophecy is that all of these predictions um, draw your. They don't prove it, like from reason, but they draw your attention to a pattern of divine promise and fulfillment of divine activity. Like can you not see it? Like it's not. The play of empire, and it's not all the power, you know, the dazzling spectacle of um, it's beneath all of that. Augustine says this in the shadows, and, and Origen, Origen has a different way of talking about it, but the point is that, um, yeah, spirit and power. The point is like, it's, it's an appeal to the heart. Is there, any, is there any rationality in history? Well, here's the logos. The logos is God's outpouring love, um, is philanthropia for Origen, and his um, Self-emptying, well, for origin too. That's his main text from Philippians. But, um, and it's like, don't you see the appeal? Like, here's here's the meaning of history. 
it's 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 just here where you weren't looking for it, JC and others. Um, it's and that that's 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 supposed to appeal to the heart, so that you be, you begin to be open to a view of history which isn't just cyclical or which isn't just one damn thing after another, but which is which is um, which is coming, which is God's plans coming to fulfillment, um, God's love coming to fulfillment. So it appeals to faith. Both of them talk this way. It doesn't prove the faith. The gospel has a demonstration of its own, superior to Grecian dialectics, of spirit and power, Origen says. And Augustine is, at certain points, very clear that th this is visible to faith. It's not a proof for reason. Even though once you receive it, you can begin to discourse about it rationally. Um, so I've been very profoundly moved by this, by the um, recovery for myself of the meaning of the so-called proof from prophecy um, and the way that it really really um, made me feel a lot of compunction about all of the all of the complacencies and um, and prideful assumptions that I brought to scholarship and it's humbling that's what I mean it's a journey and I hope to be able to I don't know I know that's a hard journey to bring others along on the journey and to because it does appeal to the heart and it does in the end uplift human dignity uh, and it it does provide a sense of hope that that isn't based on what seems to be well um, there's a whole lot of pessimistic stuff happening. It's but in the face of that, there's something beneath the surface that's worth looking at. Yeah, yeah, and that seems in line with, I mean, so many of these essays speak on rhetoric and sort of the intention of rhetoric moving beyond knowledge that puffs up and moving toward a heart on um, a heart on a journey. And so when you talk about looking at something like proof of prophecy, moving faith and moving your heart and moving you on a journey, um, even things like exposing these sort of uh, proud hiccups that we've we've brought to it, that it seems like even that process of looking at something like prophecy, it seems in line with what you what you mentioned earlier following augustine sort of in the same task of seeking truth in faith rather than seeking this intellectual certainty and erudition and letters after your name you know in the homilies on luke which are gorgeous augustine has um <clears throat> not origin i mean origin has a um it's on the it's a, it's in his early homilies on luke on the infancy narratives at a certain point, I'm going to get this wrong. I'm sure it won't. It won't. It won't come across properly. That's but right. By memory, um, he um, he gets to the prophecy of Elizabeth. You know, um, that the babe jumps in in her womb, and then um, that she, you know, says, "Who am I that the mother of my Lord would come to see visit me?" Um, and he says, um, "He just he just he just sort of extemporizes for a minute." I wish I had been there, man. He says to his congregation which is largely catechumens um you know would would that the unbelievers would regard me as foolish and as stupid for having believed such a thing <laughs> but he does believe it and like if origin can think well all these unbelievers out there these culture despises are going to think i'm ridiculous stupid for believing such a thing and he says well what that they would um so if origin can have that attitude i can have it i can believe it if he can believe it Right. Well, this is, if nothing else, very personally affirming for me. I've been wondering all year what I was doing, spending hours every week in Origin. Uh, God, it's, it's so worth it. It is, but you know, when you feel the the pressure of getting a PhD done, having young kids, and working on the side, you're like, what am I, do I have time for Origin? And it's, it's just been one of the things to say, I can't not do this with John Bear, who's going to teach me on Origin for a a year and it has been worth it personally but it's it's fun to see someone else draw out these sort of connections you know um yeah 
the path of getting a job, the credentializing is very necessary, but it's like it goes along with the other thing. And the investment of time in, in studying origin like that is going to pay off. I mean, like careers aren't, well, here I'm at a university, I'm going to sit and research. That's not a career. Career is I have all this teaching to do besides. And um, all that stuff that you do is going to pay huge dividends and making it easier to teach and having you know, more worthwhile things to say and to, and to work with students. So it's not a waste of time. No, no. And, and that's one of those things that's like, I know it's not a waste of time. It's just hard to to justify to myself when you're like, oh, I have things to do, but to know like, oh, I know this is better. Uh, so oh. hearing you is at least personally affirming. Well, glad to be able to be affirming. I mean, yeah. I was, like, I don't, I think I had four kids by the time I graduated, no five. Um, and so you have to figure out how to balance things. And I had another job. I had to. I, all that stuff, though, it, it, it adds up to something that's not, it's not necessarily ex explicitly <clears throat> definable, but it's there when you need to teach. And it's there when you need to think. Thinking mm -hmm. is about life. Like, it's, it's not about not about stuff that's separate from life. It's about life. And all thinking comes from where one is living and from the you know, kinds of dilemmas that, that, that living poses. That's where thinking comes from. It's not something separate. It's not something added on. It's not an add-on. And if you, aren't, if you aren't anywhere, you can't think anywhere. Uh, that's good. It is good. Let me, <laughs> let me pivot. Um, I mean, that's, it's good to hear when you're, I, I have to assume it changes a little bit. You've been at a university for a long time, um, and have this thing called an income. And that's something that stares me down every day of thinking like, oh, you know, when you're in, in my shoes, the pressure is, is publish and write and get a job. And every person that will tell me to slow down and live life and seek truth and not any credentials or anything else, like, yeah, that's good. And I'll cherish things. every one of those. I'm not telling you not to do all those things. I'm right. You that you don't have to, you know, publishing one paper is a lot different from publishing none and publishing two is also you know that's a big that's a big that's a big upgrade but like publishing five is not that much more significant than publishing three how's that yeah um, it's not like a race the way that you you think about it is important that's all it's not it's fun to publish. So, I mean, publish for that reason. First. <laughs> Let me pivot and ask you a little bit about your, your essays. Um, specifically, I'm curious about themes of, of selfhood and self-love that, that run through a lot of these. Um, the Darkest Enigma famously reconsidering the self and uh, but themes of I identity and the self are are commonplace uh, and tell me maybe if you have have thoughts of is there sort of questions that that tie these essays together over the years um and sort of what have you learned about Augustine and the self and self-love. Um, I'll just show my hand. I read The Darkest Enigma when I first started the PhD. And, you know, Augustine has no concept of the self. And I was like, yes. But also, what is going on with self-love in the city of God? Because there's, there's a, a something that we're supposed to not love. Uh, something might be too strong a word. But there's... Someone... There's, 
someone. So what is going on with, with Augustine, the self, self-love? Um, that's a very broad question, but you've been thinking about it for a while, it seems. Yeah, um, it's very hard to, for me to talk about anything I've written or to focus on it like it's anything all that important. Um, and if you want to know how those papers are all written, they're all written out of desperation, basically, um, to produce a paper for a conference that I signed up for. Um, but to think deeply at the same time, I hope to think deeply. And sort of to move myself anyway. Like I feel like if something I wrote moves me, then it might move somebody else. Um, and I don't think of any of them as as setting out like a a doctrine or something. Something that I think I think of them as hopefully stimulating thinking. I know that people can put things different ways. They can approach these texts, which are complex and deep, um, with different articulations, and um, to illuminate them or to help shed light on them, but also to help people shed light on their own whatever quest for wisdom they have. So um, I think that Augustine's thinking about self-love does develop. Um, I've been reading. I happen to be reading the Didactrina. I teach a class on patristic exegesis at the graduate level. Um, we're reading, uh, we're reading, um, we're reading De Doctrina, and he says in there, there's an injunction to love God and to love the neighbor. There's no injunction to love oneself because everyone naturally loves themselves. Um, but I think by the time he gets to the city of God, I don't think he thinks that as much. He doesn't repeat that. And I think that in a sense, as his thinking develops, what, what pride is, superbia for Augustine is essentially self-hatred. Um, you know, that I'm not God, and I and I hate myself, therefore. I'm not God. I want to be God. I like, I, and so therefore, I can't, I can't accept myself. I can't accept myself as a creature. Um, and furthermore, I know I've screwed up, and that makes, that only makes it worse. So self-hatred, I think, there's a couple of passages in the city of God I have in mind I can point out to you, though I don't have the text right here in front of me. But um, self-hatred, I think, becomes an issue. Um, I don't think you're hating a thing called the self. You're hating yourself. Like, okay, yeah. Like language, like the, re the reflexive in language doesn't mean that every time you think of myself, you're thinking of a thing. Um, you're, you're, th you're coming in, 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 in contact with your deepest, I don't know, fears and desires and anxieties and, and hopes and Every time it seems to come up short, like I'm just not good enough. I can't get anywhere. I don't, I don't produce enough. I don't, I'm not good enough. I don't have enough compassion. Um, like I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't have anything. And yeah, I hate myself and that, that itself is bad. So like, it's an endless, so how do you get out of it? Um, Somehow you get out of it the same way you get out of the pride that it comes from. And that is somehow realizing that wisdom, the Son, eternally begotten of the Father, God from light, light from light, true God from true God, you know, came down from heaven, which means basically, though he was rich, he became poor. He left it all behind. Yeah, I forgot my CV on the desk. Um, I got to rely on John the Baptist, who's like, <laughs> eats, eats locusts and wild honey, to say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And most people are likely to say, yeah, you get a job, and then I'll believe you. Um, like, there's no, there's nothing held back in that self-emptying, nothing. Um, and that self-emptying happens, like, there's, there's that reflexive thing, right, for God, self-emptying. Um, it's not a, it's not a thing called the self that he threw out, but it's a, it's a way of express of self expression um, that came to me that really um, like took took me on and thought it was worth it 
to leave all of that behind um, and to to um to end up in a situation where instead of being praised, he was mocked mercilessly, and where instead of um, where instead of being followed, he was rejected and left behind, and as though like all of the things I hate about myself were applied to him, only when he looked into his heart, you know, he he didn't see that self-hatred. He saw self-emptying. Um, and he saw me in that self-emptying. And so I, I think that Augustine, I mean, he says in the Confessions, like, here we are, like, trying to find, you know, climb the heights and, um, you know, show how wise we are. And then when all of a sudden we see God at our feet, having given all that up, um, it's a little bit moving, uh, maybe. It might soften your heart a little bit. But it might make it so that you feel like there's more to yourself than everything you hate. And that there might be someone you can walk along. Um, I know it's a little bit of a dramatic translation that, of Edmund Hills in the, um, in the Didactrina to say that he emptied himself and made himself the pavement under our feet. But I'm willing to accept the translation. It's very moving. Um, and I think it's, it's Augustinian in its spirit. And maybe, maybe that knot of self-hatred will begin to, maybe you'll just forget yourself. How's that? Here's someone who just loved you and responded. Forget yourself. Live a little. Um, what, are you, what you're leaving behind is you know, all these terrible, all these terrible thoughts um, about your own unworthiness. And um, he didn't care. He left everything for you. That's Augustine, I think, the self-emptying um, of the word. Is that a dumb answer? Sorry. No, that's that's the right answer, as far as I can tell. Uh, but it's it's hard to to piece that together. Um, well, pride means creating a self-image, you might say. Um, yeah. To hide the to hide to hide our own self hatred, so we create prestigious CVs, and we 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 you know we live out of our CV instead of out of ourselves, and then um, but are we what are we doing it for, and? To, to, to create an image of yourself, to, because you're not willing to accept yourself as created as limited and not God, um, is, is really to become alienated from yourself and to, to become addicted to that perversely. And there are all sorts of cultural structures that enable, that, that persuade you that that's the right way to go, which is why I'm interested in cultural structures that help people see more. It's an Augustinian thing I'm always trying to do. See what I mean? Yeah. I, I really do think with Augustine, I feel like it's a very uncanny feeling. I know you're going to laugh at me. I just feel like he's sort of thinking with me or that he's... I, I've ne I, I have I, I have a kind of affinity for him or his way of thinking. When I was when I was chair of the Department of Theology, we had to go to these horrible meetings all the time. I used to bring, <laughs> I used to bring with me the um, the um, the uh, one volume um, City of God, the blue one, mm -hmm. you know, the edition. Like it's all combined, the CC uh, Corpus Corpus Christianorum. Yeah. yeah. Um, as though I had just come from class with it or something, but I hadn't. I just wanted to bring it to the meeting, like like an like a, um like an up like a uh, like an up upscale teddy bear. Um, because well, you have to you have to admit there was a little bit of like you know I can you know here I can read this text, okay, guys. Like how many of you like even know Latin? There was a little bit of that, but most of it was everything 
Augustine saw everything that's going to go on in this meeting, everything that's going to happen here, all the posturing, all my own screwing up, everything, and still thought you could hope and still thought that it could be healed. And so I brought it with me all the time, every single meeting. People must have thought it was the Bible or something, but it was for that reason. I also, you know, got muscular doing it. It's heavy. <laughs> have you read um isn't that stupid like <laughs> no i mean that was yes but me. in a good way yeah thank you <laughs> um i've i've done similar stupid things just carrying around a book because you you need the friend more than you are gonna read the book um have you read michael lamb's new book on it's a Commonwealth of Hope. Yeah, I've started reading it. Yeah, I've been, not to famously plug his book, though I will. Um, that has been a, existentially, if you will, a, a tough book for me to like read. I, I probably read it um, back before it came out because I was interviewing him for the podcast. And I, at first I just thought, like, I don't know that Augustine's this hopeful. Um and then I've just had to to sit with that and think, like, I just don't think I'm hopeful. Like, I had had sort of, I think, hidden myself behind some Augustinian pessimism that I knew might not be the most um, rigorous scholarship, but it sort of gave me a, a good excuse to stop hoping in building things and improvement and sort of any earthly things that happen. Uh, so I so, have, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. I just think you have to be careful not to translate it out of a theological key, as, right. though, as though there were a secular version of this. Yeah. It could be that would have the same, um, I don't know, the same, the same persuasive depth of hope that comes, you know, from... From I know Augustine didn't use these language, this language, but the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love as such. Yeah, I don't that's think theological it's, virtues. It's any translating. Is any really? I mean, you can you can. There's two ways of translating. One is I think a Kantian way, which translates you know, language of revelation into the language of the religion within the boundaries of reason alone. Um, the other way of translating is to try to um, create an analog, which may not in its first iteration be theological. It might be, you know, something which um, can draw somebody in, but I think it has to come from a theological instinct and it has to lead to one. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think the first is translating in any meaningful way, right? No, it's well. I mean, that's. I mean, yeah, but that's tra translating out of the language of revelation into the language of pure reason alone. It is. It is a mode of translation, but it's it's a denaturing at the same time. Yeah, I think those. Well, yeah, I agree with you. I think the words sort of stop meaning anything close to to what they mean, and especially in a book like *The City of God*. Yeah. Yeah. Um. You can't even translate the title. Just, right. Yeah, you're stuck. Um, well, I'm. I don't want to keep you super long, but I have probably the the essay. I was not familiar with this essay when I came through the works, but your Eucharistic exegesis in the Confessions. Um, for me, it seems like I want it to be at least the natural conclusion to this conversation about the self and self-love. I, um, I don't know how Augustinian it, it is in the sense of I wish Augustine would have more overt Eucharistic connection there in this sort of self-emptying and coming back to to himself in 
the Eucharist. Um, I don't know that that language is, is overt in Augustine, but uh, your essay makes me hopeful. It, is it there? What do you mean by, by Eucharistic exegesis? Do you see any sort of um, conclusion there to these these sort of identity problems for Augustine himself in Eucharist? I think the sort of the easy answer might be the the Kierkegaardian. We don't have any concept of who we are until eternity. Uh, everything just sort of despair until eternity. Something like a Eucharistic exegesis gives me hope that there is some meaning to who we are in Christ uh, before death. Does that make sense? It does, Joshua. It's very beautiful, too, what you just said. Um, I would say that maybe a couple of things. Maybe um, in terms of the confessions, if the Eucharist, I mean, in a sense, Augustine's, you know, ascent through memory is bounded by the Eucharist. It's bounded by, you know, the Eucharistic considerations of Book Nine and where he leaves us. Um, and then it's bounded by the, you know, actual Eucharistic um, language, the re recalling of the Eucharist itself at the end of Book 10. So if memory, in a sense, is you know, the locus of self-awareness, basically mm -hmm. self-consciousness, self-awareness, um, not just of the past, but yes, of the past, then the Eucharistic exegesis means... that our ascent, the boundaries of memory, right? And so therefore the boundaries of the ascent into memory aren't simply metaphysical, not anti-metaphysical, but they aren't simply, you can't, you can't give a metaphysical account of them alone, but rather um, you are, all along, right, if the memory is bounded by the Eucharist, you're all along remembering and ascending from and ascending to the mercy of God. So you're, re you're remembering God's remembering of us. That's what the Bible is about. Mm -hmm. So that insofar as God remembers us, um, and you're remembering God's remembering of us in, the, in, in a Eucharistic mode, actually in, in participation in the Eucharist, you are your whole self-awareness you you could say is formed eucharistically it's it's formed therefore in the gratitude for being for being someone for um for your own being and for the for the reaching out of the hand of compassion in the eucharist and for the the eschatological orientation and hope that it, that it gives that, that it provides you, so Eucharistic exegesis. I'm um, approaching the Bible as God's remembering of us and remembering God's remembering, very broadly speaking, applying it to the as Augustine does to the first, um, you know, to the Hexameron. Yeah, means means becoming aware of your own goodness as God made you and being grateful for it. Um, and being able to say thank you much more freely and much more often, and to be um, aware of contemplating in the mercy that made you and the mercy that re redeemed you, seems to me that's you're then much more likely to be a person who gives, you know, to be to be Eucharistic for others because you have something to give, but it was given to you to give. That's a kind. I don't know if that helps. No, that helps. Um, and I think by the time we get to the city of God, this Eucharistic sort of awareness is very firmly solidified. Um, book ten really is the is the is the high point of the city of God. That towards which it builds, and then that towards which you look at the whole Bible, right? 
um, people forget. Augustine says that the um, you know prophecy is like there never was a time since Adam and Eve that we weren't without prophecy of Christ and the church. People always leave out and the church. Um, and the church is formed Eucharistically, so that you 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 um, basically the 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 hard work of the apologetics is done in Book Ten. Now you've got the perspective from which to read the Bible, um, Eucharistically, ecclesially, however you want to put it. And the, and the, and the genre shifts right by the, when you get to yeah. Book Eleven. All of a sudden, it's now it's scriptural exegesis. Interesting. Starting with the hexameron, just like in the Confessions, only he doesn't end where he ends in the Confessions. So right. it develops, I think. It's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. I mean, I want to be that. Like, I feel like I'm nowhere near that. That's what I want to be. Like, so I, like I, it's not separable from my own Eucharistic practice. Like, I just, sorry to bring that in, but it's, it's Augustinian. I have an Augustinian Eucharistic sensibility. I love Thomas. Don't get me wrong, but <laughs> and what I've learned from my colleague Joseph Werikow is that Thomas is super Augustinian. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm with you there. Um, I love Thomas. I have a bad taste in my mouth because I know so many people who read Thomas and then read Augustine and they. We're reading different versions of Augustine, it seems, somehow. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, the, the people that tell me Thomas is Augustinian. The Thomas Monke Augustine. Yeah. Really? Well, just think about this. Augustine is, I mean, Thomas is de drank deeply from those Augustinian wells, especially, you know, the later, the later Augustine that everybody is so inclined to, you know, put, you know, shove off. No, that's that's very helpful, um, and it's sort of a a missing piece in in where I'm going. Um, hopefully, with my life, if not the PhD, um, <laughs> is trying to figure out where does the Eucharist get into these problems of of self. Um, and I don't know if it's because I'm reading Origin and Kierkegaard or hanging out with Father John, but there's all these questions of of death and participating in death and martyrdom and you kind of have at least in my mind there has been this big stopgap of saying there should be a connection here through the eucharist of participating in in death with christ um there is so that, where there is yeah yeah um but i hadn't I hadn't seen it, especially not in the Confessions, as drawn out in that essay. So, listen, Joshua, uh, it's very kind of you to even bring it up. So, um, I appreciate that a lot. And you know, these things don't fall into place like in ten seconds. No, I told you like some of the intellectual like mistakes I made. They were like it took me a long time to see them. I'm not saying you have any, but I'm saying I'm thinking about myself, and you know, putting these things together. It's not. It doesn't take 10 seconds. And and you know what, Augustine, I think, thinks that that's okay. Yeah. I'm afraid that if I met him, he would say, you're such a slacker. But, <laughs> but if I read his things and think along with him, I feel like, yeah, but John, you can't act that way towards anybody. And so he wouldn't act that way. You know, he's, he's saying, you know, it just takes time. This is okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think he'd... He'd, he'd be pretty kind. To you, he would be. To you. You have sincere. Um, it's been very evident. Oh, uh, we'll, we'll see. Um, well, thank you for your time. Let me know if you get that uh, patristics apologetics course up. I'll have to find a, a semester in South Bend. Absolutely. That, that sounds like a lot of fun. Um, it's a, it was a deeply moving course. Um, the more I got into the Contra Kelsum, it's just like going to look at the Grand Canyon. It's like, oh boy. <laughs> and, but the bottom line in that, in my, in my opinion, um, the thing which cannot be allegorized, cannot be like, but is itself and is the Ur narrative is, is Philippians 2. Yeah. For, for origin. Yeah. 
That's right. Well, let me ask you, um, I feel like I'm, I know what you're going to say, but um, what are you working on now? Other than, I mean, specifically, not not just teaching and seeking truth and faith, but are there, there questions you're playing with currently or things you're writing? I'm working on a little book on the city of God, actually. Okay. Um, whatever. To uselessly add to the huge literature on it, one little thing. Um, I um, I also have written um, uh, with my daughter and with a local illustrator a, a, a children's book of saints. It's a kind of a different kind of book of saints for kids. Um, we'll see what happens. Like that would come out. I worked on that too. Um, I'm interested in catechetical stuff. I I work I, I work in the domain of catechesis and. Um, I'm also I'm also interested in writing a in um, in expanding the essay I did on the relationship between the literal and the allegorical and um, in the um, whatever that was was the Oxford Companion early Christian exegesis I don't know I wrote an essay in there and I'm interested in expanding that into a little into a little book good whatever. I'll look forward to, to all of those. About these things because then it makes it seem like they're more important than they are. But I am interested in doing those things. A children's book is very important. Oh yeah, and there's a lot of like I wanted to. I wanted to think like, like how could you make a kid like, like want to be a saint? You have to make their lives seem interesting and not just pious. And not I, just not just the death part. Right. I mean, like I'm insufferably pious, I guess, but um. But somehow, um, like Luke, like Luke, I mean, he went on all those adventures with St. Paul, like, and got shipwrecked. I mean, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> that is interesting. I remember, I don't know what possessed me to say this, but when I was a kid, I was talking to my dad, and I guess I would just learned about martyrdom, and I was like, Dad, I think when I grow up, I want to be a martyr. And he just looked at me and said, what are you reading? <laughs> what is going on? And he was like, I hope you don't. Uh, I think I've grown out of that a little bit, unfortunately. But well, martyr means witness, and so if you yeah. want to grow up and be a martyr, you want to grow up and be a witness. And there's degrees of witnessing, and if if you want to be a witness, like the nth degree could be that, but that doesn't. I mean, and so you got to be ready for that. But it doesn't mean that your life isn't a witness if it doesn't. You know, if that's not asked. Right. Say I want to be a martyr. You're right. You want to be a witness. Hopefully, I still still mean that. <sighs> do I do all right um last question what would you you recommend reading on augustine these days uh, where do you see good work being done what have you seen that's interesting lately what is, what is john cavadini reading Um, you know, I, I there's a lot of good stuff to read on Augustine out there. I, I kind of don't want to judge one thing versus another one. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, we could just list all of your students' publications, but I'd take all day. <laughs> well, good. Well, I'll, I'll wrap up the recording there, um, but thank you so much for taking time to talk. It means a lot to me. Thank you for taking the time to talk, but also thank you for taking the time to listen. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. John C. Cavadini. If you like the show or want to find out more, go buy his book, Visioning Augustine. As always, there's a link in the description, but also check out the other work he's doing. 
go by his other essays or find them online. As is obvious from our conversation today, he's written on a lot more than just Augustine. He writes extensively on all sorts of patristic theology and Catholic intellectual life. Also, look at the work he's doing at the McGrath Institute and the things he's doing at the University of Notre Dame. If you've been around Augustinian scholars or studies long enough, or even just for a few minutes, maybe you've just listened to a couple episodes of the show, you'll know that John Cavadini's name comes up quite a bit, and his work is really worth sitting with and studying, regardless of what he says about it. I hope you enjoyed our conversation, and as always, thanks for listening.